I, I didn't like start off life dreaming that I'd be a pastor someday. Actually, my very first dream was that I would be a soccer player. I played soccer for 14 years of my life. Uh, my end goal was actually I wanted to play for our local team, the New England Revolution. And uh, that didn't end up working out, but I still got involved in soccer a lot. Uh, I was a, a coach for a high school team. I, I coached elementary school students, but I, I wasn't coaching at any crazy high level. I was usually coaching people who had never played before. And whenever you're starting out in any new sport, especially a sport where you're having to learn a whole new skill, like in soccer, where you're not used to controlling a ball or anything with your feet. Like it's not like it's not like baseball where you might have thrown a rock before in your life. Like soccer, you're actively trying to be coordinated with your feet. Like that's not a skill that comes up in any other area of life. But uh, when you're learning a new skill, when you're learning a, a sport that requires a new skill, there's a lot of practice that comes in where you actually have to practice in somewhat isolation. Uh, you're learning the basics of the sport. You're learning the basic rules of the sport. Uh, you're learning how to kick a ball, uh, how to kick a ball when you pass versus when you shoot. Like you're you're hitting the ball with different areas of your foot. Um, like what what it takes to be a, a handball, like how far along your arm does the ball have to hit for it to be handball. Like all those things are a part of the sport. All those things you have to learn. And there are skills that come into play that you need to practice uh, alone before you're dealing with an opponent because all those things are really hard to develop and learn and, and grow in your skill set uh, without somebody else trying to kick the ball away from you. But if you've ever coached uh, youth soccer or maybe you've been a parent and uh, you've watched your kids' soccer games, you know that as soon as the whistle blows, as soon as the game starts, all of that practice, all those fundamentals, they fly out the window because every kid suddenly becomes just obsessed with trying to kick the ball as hard and as far as they possibly can with no awareness of who else is on the field or where they're at on the field. And so all of the training goes out the window as soon as you introduce an, an opponent, as soon as the, as the adrenaline uh, rises, as soon as there's any bit of opposition. And us coaches in youth soccer, We'd call that that group of kids that are all chasing the ball together in that tangle of legs and screams, we'd call it the swarm. Uh, and, and what's interesting is that when Peter is writing to these scattered Christians all through this area of modern day Turkey, uh, he's writing to them about how to keep in mind their fundamentals while they're dealing with opposition. And so Peter's writing to them about how to live out their faith while they're in, in this really tough environment to their faith. These believers were scattered. Many of them were lonely. They were scared. They were dealing with all sorts of difficulties. All the while, they're trying to pursue holy living in a broken world. And so the, the Roman Empire, which was the, the main superpower in the world at this point in history, they were turning up the heat against Christianity. In fact, within a few years of writing this letter, three key piece, uh, pieces of the, the Christian movement were killed. Peter, who wrote this letter, James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul, who is a, a first century church planter, all of them were killed as a result of their faith. And then we even brought up last week that there are a number of natural obstacles that would come up that are, are natural to every follower of Jesus that would come up uh, against their faith and make it difficult to follow God. There were governmental pressures, there were power imbalances, relational tensions, and just the struggles that are common to everybody going through life. And so Peter in, in 1 Peter chapter 3 writes a, 
a quick little encouragement to these followers of Jesus. He says, remember, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that's what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. Now, all of these struggles are heavy, but what Peter is writing about is they're all heavy, but they also should be expected. Peter lays all these obstacles, all these all these struggles to living out your faith out because the end goal of his letter, what he's trying to communicate is, is this encouragement to hold on because it will all be worth it in the end. It's an encouragement to not end up in the swarm of life and be kicking the ball that everybody else is kicking as hard and as far as you can with no awareness of the rest of the field, with no awareness of the God-given and God-driven opportunities to, to serve and love other people. Uh, and so God invites us into a, a different type of life where we're not running after the same things as everybody else and we're not overwhelmed by the obstacles and the struggles around us that we forget the fundamentals of our faith. And so as we come towards the end of the letter, uh, Peter gives some last bits of instructions on how to finish well, how to endure until the end. And, and the first charge that Peter writes to these young Christians, and when I say young Christians, Honestly, the whole movement of Christianity was young at this point. It was only about 30 years old. But he writes to them in, in chapter 5, and this is what he says. And now, a word to you who are elders in the church. So last week, we talked about where, where Peter wrote to people who had no authority. They were always under the authority of other people. And now he addresses the beginning of chapter 5 to people who have a lot of authority, actually, and even authority within a, a church environment. And he says, I, too— am an elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, and I too will share in his glory when he's revealed to the whole world. As a fellow elder, I appeal to you. Now, Peter's kind of shortchanging himself because he's not just a witness to what Jesus did. He actually was with Jesus, and Jesus picked him as one of his first ever followers. And Peter's also not just an elder at a church. Peter is the guy that Jesus said he'd build his church upon this rock. Like Peter could say, I'm a big deal. You need to listen to me. But Peter actually tries to get on the same level as the elders say, I'm one of you. I care about people. And I'm actually putting myself under this responsibility that I'm about to write to you. And so he's saying, use your authority, use your role for this. Verse two, care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you will get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord it over people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. And when the great shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. And, and I realize that for some people, and maybe this is your story, maybe you've been a little bit hesitant to engage in in church or, or Christianity or, or spirituality because of an experience you had of somebody who had some sort of authority or leadership within a church context and they kind of abused it. What I want you to see here is that Peter's heart, like the first century, a first century leader of the movement of Christianity and God's heart is that leadership in a church context would look more like service than tyranny that it's not something that's driven by somebody's title, that a leader is actually called to be a servant. And then Peter starts to broaden his audience, who he's talking to a little bit more. And he says in verse five, in the same way, you who are younger, so not just elders of the church, but you who are younger, 
you must accept the authority of the elders. And all of you, so he's furthering his audience even further. Now, anybody who's reading this, dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he'll lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares for you. So Peter's saying to everybody in the church, whether they're old, whether they're young, if they have a position and a title or not, if they're mature or less mature or, or new to their faith, whoever they are, his first piece of instruction, if you're going to endure until the end, if you're going to hold on and, and see that this whole faith thing, this journey of Christianity is worth it in the end, the first piece of instruction he gives is to seek humility. So to the church elder who could easily hold on to his title or say that I've experienced enough, now it's time for other people to serve me, he says, stay humble. Don't wear your title as a badge, but wear it as a heavy responsibility to serve other people. To the young believer who might look at the elders and say, man, I don't want to listen to anybody else. I want to carve out my own path. He says, stay humble. Like actually these people, these people in authority that could be teaching you, it might be good for you to be under their authority, especially if they're leading as servants, because their authority might be good for your growth and for your spiritual health. And to anybody between, he says, stay humble. Remember that regardless of who is over you, God is listening and he cares so you can bring your cares to him. He doesn't just write to them to seek humility, though. What's, it, what's interesting is he doesn't just say stay humble or seek humility. He gives them a really direct and very firm warning against pride. See, Peter actually quotes Proverbs when he says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And the, the, the word for that opposes is this word antitasso. And that's more than just this idea that God is like has a low tolerance for ar arrogant people. It's actually this idea that God actively opposes, works against, stands against, confronts, battles, goes to war against pride. That antitasso word, it's kind of like if there's a if there's an enemy coming and you'd have a line of soldiers with their shields up, it's literally the 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 movement of leaning against that opposing force with your shield, feeling the weight of their attack, and then taking a step forward. And that's how God handles our pride. It says that God has not little tolerance for pride. He has no tolerance for it, and he will actively work against pridefulness. And this pride isn't just a sense of like fulfillment or satisfaction after a long day's hard work. This is any level of sense that I am higher or better, or my needs and my wants are more important than the needs, wants, and, and even the people that God has placed in my life. And, and I was trying to think of like a good example of how pride affects like a, a family or, or like a team or, or a community like church. And, and the best example I could think of is uh, actually from this past year's NFL season. There's a really talented wide receiver named Antonio Brown. And uh, he was actually within $1.3 million of, of uh, he, he was within reach of $1.3 million of incentives that he could have earned from this last game. But the team was up and they were trying to make sure everybody was well rested because the playoffs were coming. 
And so he flipped out. He had this meltdown. He took off his jersey. He uh, actually did jumping jacks uh, shirtless in the end zone, which I don't know how that's going to get you what you want. But like he just like melted down completely, was so mad that he couldn't get what he wanted at the risk of what the team was hoping to achieve collectively, that he put his needs, his wants in front of the team. In the process, he hurt their chances of winning a Super Bowl. And this is Tom Brady's team. Honestly, I am. I am. I have a confession. I am more of a Tom Brady fan than a Patriots fan. So like for a month earlier this year, I was back to being a Patriots fan, but then he unretired. So I'm back on that that bandwagon. But like, it'll be fine once he retires, I'll be back as a Patriots fan. But this guy took more of a priority, more of an interest in his own desires than, than what the team was hoping to accomplish. And when it comes to us working together as followers of Jesus, when it comes to Christians making up a church, God's people are called to build something bigger than just a life for themselves. So there's no room for diva wide receiver Christians. We're called to engage in building God's kingdom together. And Peter even talked about this idea a couple chapters ago, where he said that God is building something different, that God is building something that's bigger than any one of us. And he said the first piece of what God is building is Jesus. He called him the cornerstone, like the first pillar, immovable rock that makes up the corner of this structure. And then Peter said that anybody who chooses to follow Jesus, their lives are like living stones that make up the sides of these walls that jut out from that cornerstone to keep on building God's kingdom. So that anybody who has questions about God, anybody who's unsure about God could look at the lives of people who follow this God and see like a a living reminder of who God is and what he's like. And what that also means is that Jesus isn't here to help build our kingdom. And, And we aren't like the, we're not the foundational piece that's holding God and his kingdom together. But pride struggles to recognize that because pride struggles to to believe that there's anything more important than building itself up. There's an author by the name of Max Licato who he wrote a book called Unshakable Hope. And in his book, he talked about God's opposition of pride. And he said this, God resists the proud because the proud resist God. Arrogance will not admit to sin. The heart of pride never confesses, never repents, never asked for forgiveness. And then he said this, pride is the hidden reef that shipwrecks the soul. I think that might be the biggest reason why God opposes pride so strongly. It's actually to protect you. See, pride blinds us from everything outside of us. And so out of love, God opposes our pride. He attacks our pride so that we're not blind to opportunities to serve and love other people, but we're also not blind to very real threats to our faith and the very real enemy of our souls, the devil, who Peter writes about in the very next verse. In verse eight, he says, stay alert, watch out, which if I believed that I was the best, that I was undefeatable, out of my pride, out of my arrogance. If I believed that there was nothing that could take me down, why would I be alert and watch out? So Peter's saying, stay humble, but now stay alert because your great enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So God resists our pride out of love so that we can be guarded against our enemy. An enemy 
who Peter says we need to stay alert to, which is the second instruction that he gives if we want to hold on and see the reward of our faith in the end, see that it's all worth it in the end. He says, stay alert. Now, what's strange about this whole lion picture is that Peter describes this lion as one who prowls around roaring, looking for someone to devour. Now, if I was a lion and I was hungry, trying to find something to eat, the last thing I'd want to do is make a lot of noise. The last thing I could picture a lion doing who's on the hunt is roaring so every every single animal on the plains would run away and know exactly where they are. Like that seems kind of counterintuitive to me. Like I'd want to stay silent and I'd want to stay invisible so that I can catch my prey by surprise. And so like I, I wasn't sure what to do with this until I just thought of this idea like what if the reason why he roars is because that's all he can do. There's a commentary called the Enduring Word Bible Commentary, and it puts it this way, and I thought this was great. It says, for Christians, Satan is a lion who may roar, but one who has been defanged at the cross. And they take that from uh, Colossians 2, 14 through 15, which says, Jesus canceled the record of the charges against us, and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, check this out, He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. That's a pretty boss move by Jesus. That like he performed crazy, super spiritual jujitsu against Satan to, to take away a lot of the threat that he posed. But that doesn't mean that he's not threatening at all. The commentary continues and it says, Yet the sound of his roar, this lion still, the sound of his roar, his deceptive lies are still potent and he has the power to devour souls and rob Christians of effectiveness. See, God promised salvation to anybody who chooses to follow him. So in that way, the lion has been defanged, but he will still do everything and everything he can to distract you from what God wants to do in you and through you. And if that means he has to roar loud and often to try to drown out the voice of God in your life, he will. If that means that he has to lie or twist God's word so that you start distrusting God or make life so chaotic that you you forget to even spend time with God, that's exactly what he'll do. He'll send persecution, he'll send accusations, he'll send temptations your way, all to try to get you to no longer listen to God, to not be as effective as a follower of Jesus. And even the lives of the people that Peter's writing to, they were going through all of these different roars that were in their way, that were drowning out the voice of God or could have drowned out the voice of God, that they were experiencing persecution from Rome. They were experiencing temptations to give into their own pride, temptation to give up on the tough pursuit of holy living. They were experiencing accusations that their movement was a cult. They were being accused of trying to sabotage the Roman Empire. And some of them had even been estranged from their families because of their following Jesus. And Peter is just telling them, You have an enemy. If you're wondering why all of this is happening, the reason why, or at least part of the reason why, is because this enemy, this lion is mad. And he's trying to get you to give up. So stay alert. Watch out. Don't be surprised that he's roaring. Being surprised that that the devil is going to be opposed to what God is trying to do in your life would be like stepping into a boxing ring and being surprised that the guy that you're fighting is punching you back. 
Like Peter's just saying, he's going to punch back. He's roaring. He's fighting. He's going to try to stop you. So he's saying, get ready, stay alert, because it will all be worth it in the end, because the promised salvation that God has said he's going to give you is promised. So trust the promise keeper that the, the devil will throw all sorts of things at you because the devil, he knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. But this God knows your sin, but he calls you by your name. And so be humbly aware of the real threat of the devil, but be humbly aware also of the very real God, uh, the very real love that God has for you. So as you stay alert and as you seek humility, as you remind yourself of God's promises and his love for you, Peter gives one last key to enduring until the end, and that's to stand firm. In verse 9, he says, stand firm against him. Against who? The devil, the roaring lion. And be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering that you are. See, the best way to stand for something is actually to stand with other people. And Peter gives this reminder to anybody who's tired of standing against those roars, of, of holding on, anybody who's even starting to question, like, is this actually worth it in the end? He goes, you actually have other people in your life, other people around you. He says, you have a family of believers all over the world who are going through the same thing. You were never meant to do life or faith alone. Christianity is a team sport. And what's interesting to me, though, too, is that, that Peter is the the guy who he kind of always stood alone. If you look at his life during his time following Jesus, he was always the guy who was speaking out or acting out or standing out that he kind of distanced himself from the other followers of Jesus, from the other disciples. Like he even, he corrected Jesus a couple times, which I think is funny because he was the first one to say, I believe that you're God, but he's also the one who's like telling Jesus, I know you said this is gonna happen, but I won't let it happen. And Jesus is going, I, I think I know, I have a better idea of what the future is going to look like than you. But at a peak moment of Peter's pride, he tells Jesus, he promises him, I would never deny you. Like, I'll, I will always be faithful. I'll always stick with you. Like, I, I am strong enough to do this. And no more than 24 hours later, Peter has actually denied that he ever even met Jesus or knows who he is three times. The next time Peter sees Jesus, Jesus gives Peter some instructions that he has a conversation with him. And that conversation is recorded in John chapter 21. It says that after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know that I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know that I love you. Then care for my sheep. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. So Jesus, three times, tells Peter, if you love me, then feed or care. And what he means is shepherd, grow, develop, train, equip, do life with my people. No more standing alone. 
No more bravado. No more telling Jesus what you will do for him or won't do to him. The idea that Peter is writing this letter to these young Christians who are scared, who are dealing with all these struggles, all these trials, all these all these reasons to give up, and, and his reminder and encouragement to them is, you don't have to stand alone, is evidence that Peter took Jesus' words seriously. Don't stand alone. Stand firm and stand with other people. And the beauty in all of this is that if you just stay in the game, if you just hold on, which you don't have to do alone, if you just hold on, there's a promise on the other side of the trials. Verse 10, he says, In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you've suffered a little while, he will restore, he will support, and he will strengthen you. And he will place you on a firm foundation. All power to him forever. Amen. Now, I think being restored, supported, and strengthened are are things that any one of us would want, regardless of where we're at in life, regardless of what's happening around us. Whether you're like a really churchy person or you're like, man, this is my first time ever in church or checking out a church. Like all of us would want to be restored, supported, and strengthened. But God isn't going to restore or like reinvigorate you so you can have more energy to run further from him. And God isn't going to support you in pursuits that take you away from him. And God isn't going to strengthen you if you aren't doing anything with the strength that he's already provided you. So Peter's trying to tell these believers that these, this, this restoration, this support, this strengthening is on the other side of holding on, of pursuing holiness in the face of opposition. It requires that believing that the goodness of God is better and greater than the badness of the moment. It's kind of like your your body will never get stronger through inaction alone. Your body only gets stronger, it only gets healthier when you act and then you take time to recover. And in, in the same way, God is asking you to act out your faith, live out your faith, take an active approach to your faith in the face of opposition, and he will provide that restoration, that support, and that strengthening on the other side. I I heard a pastor say one time that we all want mountaintop experiences. We all want those moments where we feel like we're above the clouds, we're standing on top of a mountain, like nobody likes to climb up, but everybody wants to be on top of the mountain. We can see things clearer. We feel like we have a better perspective. Like it's really hard to have a negative attitude when you're at the top of a mountain and looking around at everything. But he said the only problem with a mountaintop experience is if you look at a mountaintop, nothing grows on top of a mountain. It's barren. Usually there's either snow or just rock up there. See, things grow in the valley. And maybe you've found yourself during the series through Peter, relating to the people that Peter's been writing to. Because if you look at your life, it's felt like a valley. It's felt like a low place. It's felt like for a long time, maybe it's different issues or maybe it's the same issue that comes to the forefront of your mind when I say valley, when I say dark place, when I say deep or, or, or low point. Whatever that thing is, what I want you to know is the reason why God has you there isn't just, it's not so you'd suffer. It's because he wants you to be able to experience his strengthening, his support, 
and restoration. Things don't grow on top of the mountain, they grow in the valley. But on the other side, and what Peter does here, I love this, he says, so after you've suffered a little while. Now I realize that some of you, maybe your suffering has felt like a lot more than a little while. The point is, is that it's temporary. And Peter continually pointed over and over again to the reality that Jesus is coming back. That this God, this promise keeper, this king of kings, this cornerstone, isn't leaving anybody in a place where he can't see them, where he's not coming back, where where he doesn't know where you are. He knows where you are. He sees you. He cares about you. And that's why even to to those Christians that he was speaking to in the very beginning of the chapter, he says, give all your worries and cares to God. And he adds, for he cares for you. See, I think sometimes we look at where where our life is, where we look at the situation we find ourselves in, and, and we just think, if life is this bad, how can this God be so good? When what this God wants you to do is simply turn to him, get close to him so that you can feel his goodness, even in the badness of your circumstance even when the rest of everything around you feels like it's not looking the way that you dreamed. Because the mountaintop is coming. God wants to take you there. But what he wants to do is grow you so that maybe somebody else in your life can see that it's possible for beautiful things to grow in difficult places.